Welcome to The Storytellers, the radio show and podcast that features those who choose to leave their mark on the world through the art of story. I'm your host, Grace Salmon. I look forward to our time together today. Now, let's meet our storyteller. Welcome to episode 96 of The Storytellers with Susan Meisner. I probably don't need to do an introduction. Susan has half a million books in print in 15 languages. She's the author of some amazing novels, which we'll talk about, a new children's book, which is just coming out. She also does some volunteer work with at-risk youth. So with all of that, Susan, welcome to The Storytellers Microphone. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Well, I'm so happy to have you here. Publishers Weekly describes you as your your prose is exquisite and you are a stunning storyteller. And indeed you are. I started out my research for today on your website and the banner on your website says stories of where we've been and where we are going. Would you start us off with addressing that? Sure. Well, I write historical fiction. That's my lane. I didn't start out in that lane, but I found it in 2008 and I've never looked back. I love historical fiction. I love to read it and I love to write it. And I think it's because it's a ticket to the past and we can visit it really only through the vehicle of story. You can read a nonfiction textbook or nonfiction treatment of something and you can experience perhaps um, from a bird's eye view what it might have been like. But fiction takes you into the heart of a person, a character. And that's why I love it, because it shows us it shows us our past. And then through that past, and since we're living in the now, we have a lens for looking at the future. And it's so important to have that lens, I think. I agree. I do. Yeah, I think the past is because we remember it that we are able to take the lessons from the past with us. And I know the past matters because we wouldn't have museums if they, if it didn't matter. So I think I think I'm in a good spot when I say that the history matters to us. It matters to our future. So how did you find that? How does that become your lane if it wasn't at the outset? I think it was because I read uh, The 13th Tale by Diane Sutterfield, and I just loved that book. Um, it was a long time ago that I read it, but I remember being just floored by the way she brought in the past into the, into the present story. It's a dual timeline novel, and so you've got a character in the contemporary time and then the, the author takes you back in the past. And I just liked it. And so I wrote a book that year, 2008, called The Shape of Mercy. It was my first historical fiction and I didn't realize this was gonna be a turning point for me, but I loved writing that book. The book did really well. I won a bunch of different awards for it. It was very affirming. I think the affirmation of the, of the awards and the accolades, I mean, it's really nice, but I think what it did is it showed me where my strength lie, mm-hmm. my strength lay, and it was in historical fiction. And you have, uh, I've read some of your books, early 1900s to, where, where's your piece of fiction that you like the best? Well, it started out being 1900 to 1950, but now we're getting older. And so now you can actually write about the 60s and it's considered historical fiction. <laughs> so I, I broadened my scope a little bit to be those first six decades of the 20th century. So you have a brand new book out, Only the Beautiful. Will you tell us about that? Sure. Well, this book is about two women who are impacted rather significantly by the eugenics movement of the early 20th century. It's not a movement we hear much about anymore. It's gone by the wayside for good reason. It was not a very good idea. But back then, it was this scheme to improve the American gene pool. 
and very powerful people kind of put into play this program of deciding who could have children and who couldn't. And what it ended up being was um, forced sterilizations in, in hospitals, state institutions and hospitals everywhere you looked. And the sad thing about it is it it was a very unfair scheme. It, um, it, it There was a broad spectrum of people that it affected, including people who were quote, feeble-minded, which is a huge term we don't even use anymore. But it could have been anybody who had maybe just a, a learning disability or they didn't test well, or maybe they were impoverished and they just didn't, they weren't able to live up to their full mental capacity. And people like that were sterilized. And it's the exact same ideology that Hitler took and ran with. And we all know how terrible he took it. And so um, these two women are impacted by it. I don't sugarcoat anything. I tell the way it really happened, but I do leave lots of room for hope and help. And so I feel like in the end, it's it, it's a very satisfying story. So I've heard you say that stories are waiting for you. How did that one come to you? <clears throat> Actually, it was because I was researching for a different book. I was writing um, The Nature of Fragile Things back then. And it's about the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. And when I was researching for that book, I came across a photograph of the 1915 World's Fair which San Francisco hosted only nine years after that devastating earthquake and fire. And the photo was of an exhibit and it was called the race betterment exhibit. And it was all about touting the glories and benefits of eugenics. And I remember thinking when I saw that photo, I'm not even sure what that really means, but it looks like it's something that um, was important back then. And we're not thinking about it now. So I, I feel like it was one of those times where I came across something that is fading from mod modern memory and that it's probably something we ought not to forget. And so when I was done writing that book, I, I did the research to find out more about it. I've heard you say that you love the research and the writing is hard. So I, I wanna talk a little bit uh, later in our interview about your writing process, but what do you love about the research? Gosh, I feel like the research is like a treasure hunt. You're looking for um, gems. Sometimes they're sad pieces of history. So it's not, it, you don't have the same satisfaction as you do digging up a diamond or something. But it is, it is going down a, a long road with many, many places to turn. And uh, there's nothing wrong with going down a rabbit hole when you're doing research. It's like one of the few times when it's allowed to go down a rabbit hole. And the things you discover in the research mode, uh, you can't use it all when you're writing. I've learned, I've learned the um, the way to to distinguish what needs to go in the book and what doesn't, because it doesn't all need to go in. But I do want to know it all. I want to feel like I have the event. It's in my the fabric of my mind when I start writing, and because I don't have to create anything at that moment, the um, there's not as much weight on me to produce something because right at that moment, I'm not producing, I'm inhaling. <laughs> and so that that's what makes it fun is I don't have that creative um, weight on me that that writing produces, which I, I do love the writing part of it, but it is hard. I love that you think it's a treasure hunt. I, I couldn't agree with you more whether I'm writing fiction or nonfiction. I love the little factoids and the aha moments. But I think that what you're pointing out is so important that much of it just gives you context. You can't put it all in the information dump that we might want because it's such a great contextual piece, but it does give us a feel for that period of time or that event or that uh, historical piece that we don't have if we don't do that. So thank you for sharing that. Right. Um, I love that um, 
you have such an incredible focus and relationship with your readers. Fifth, half a million copies in print. First of all, what's that like? <laughs> it's kind of hard to imagine that there's that many little pieces of me out there in the world. It's very gratifying. I'm very, very grateful. I, I couldn't be more grateful. But what, I, I like this idea that I've I can't always travel to all the places I want to go, but my book can go into all those places. And it's 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 nice to think that my books have been translated into all different languages. And so even though I can't travel physically to all these places, this little part of me that's, you know, every book that I write, it's a, a creation that comes out of my heart and soul. And so there, there are parts of me in it. And to think that it's going all these different places is really kind of exciting. I'm very grateful. Well, this show is very much about leaving your mark on the world through the art of story, as you can see from the handprints behind me. And you have certainly done that. What legacy are you hoping to leave? Because your books have a, such a wide range of topics. Well, thank you. You know, um, I feel like I've written about some topics that ought to be remembered for lots of different reasons. And so if my, if my name falls by the wayside, I'm okay with that if what I've put out there in the literary um, universe, if that can hang around, just so that um, people who will only pay attention to history, if they read about it in a story, will still come across my books. Because some people, you may, they may not like history as a topic. They may not avail themselves of all the different ways we have of keeping history alive then maybe they're avid readers. And to, to think that, you know, historical fiction has that role of keeping history alive. I'm, I'm fine with that. If what I've written about stays in the public, uh, stays in the public uh, arena so that it, these important lessons that we've learned from the past don't get forgotten. Well, that's a very impressive legacy. You talked just a moment ago about how there's these pieces of you around the globe. Uh, how much of you is in your novels? I feel like every character I write has a little bit of me in there. Sometimes it's so indistinguishable. Even my own mother probably couldn't find that little tiny bit. You know, when I'm creating somebody out of nothing, I'm creating them out of my known experience. It's what I know about the world that allows me to create a person that doesn't exist especially a person that's not like me in the traditional sense, you know, a male character, for example, or an extremely extroverted character. I'm not an extrovert. And on the Enneagram wheel, I'm a two. And there's, you know, there's nine different types of personality traits on the Enneagram wheel. And so to create a character who might have a different number, mm -hmm. um, that, that requires me to kind of be an observer of my world and to to kind of look and see the all the different types of personalities we have. Um, I bring those to these characters, but they still come through the, they've been, you know, they've been sifted through me. <laughs> so it's still, there's still me showing up on the page, and, which is kind of fun and exciting. It is. You mentioned your mom and your mom's very integral to your storytelling, isn't she? She is. She's, um, she's my first proofreader. She's the only person that reads my book before I turn it into my editor. I don't have a critique partner or a critique group and nobody gets to see it except her. And she's a very good proofreader and it helps me to, to turn in something that's like doesn't have a whole lot of mechanical errors in it when I turn it in. So I appreciate that about her, but she's also an avid reader and her bar is set pretty high. So I feel like if she, and she's, she's promised to always be honest with me. Um, 
if she tells me this book is really good or it's got so much going for it, I, I, it's more than just your mom telling you you've written a good book. You know, it's an, it's an avid reader who has, uh, you know, her, her, she's a very distinguished reader to have her tell me that I've done a good job really means something. I love that because so often people will say, you know, you'll read an article and they'll say, now don't have your mom do this. Don't have your dad. They're just going to tell you it's okay. And my dad was my greatest fan, but he was also my best proofreader. And he would say, this isn't going anywhere. So I, I love that we both had parents, haven't had parents that uh, mm -hmm. helped our own storytelling along the way. Uh, so you don't have critique partners. You don't, at what point do you turn it into mom? When it's done, I, I've tried um, giving bits and pieces to different people to read, like my editor sometimes or my agent, but I, it feels like giving somebody a piece of cake that hasn't been baked yet. It's like, I don't want, I don't want you tasting this cake if it's still in the bowl with a spatula in it. It's mm -hmm. like, I need to bake it. It needs to be frosted. You need to eat it the way uh, I would serve it to, uh, you know, to someone else. And so I think that's why I wait until it's finished to let anybody look at it. That is not to denigrate anybody who does the exact opposite. I have lots of friends who share their chapters as they write. I just can't do it. And uh, so, yeah, she sees it when I feel like it's, it's as done as I can get it for the moment. And then of course she'll read it and give me some pointers and helping me kind of um, find where I have redundancies. And um, she, she'll let me know if I'm being overdramatic because I think sometimes I tend to bend that way and she'll, she'll let me know, which I really appreciate. So you're not an extrovert, but uh, you do sometimes get overdramatic. Are you overdramatic in real life at all? I don't think so. I hope not. I, yeah, I don't know why sometimes that shows up in my writing. I think what it, what it is, is I'm trying to express a feeling that the character has. And so I'm kind of reaching, like, what can I say to show that she's really afraid right now? And I might just go too far. So that it sounds like maybe a little melodramatic, and um, and I think it's it's when you start having to make word choices that convey like convey emotion, it can be tricky to do it just the right way so that it's not you know you don't want to you know you don't want to tell you want to show, and you don't want it to be overkill, but you don't want to not say enough either. I think it's a balancing act. Well, I've read part of Only the Beautiful, and you gave me absolute chills when our protagonist is heading up to the um, facility, if you will, and she just reads the words on the sign. And it, you do a beautiful job of connecting that feeling through your words. You have talked in other interviews about your writing process and about how hard it is. Uh, I'd like you to talk about that for a minute. And I'd also like you to weave in there because this was the favorite thing, you know, for those of us, I'll have seven books out by the end of this summer. And I just assume it gets easier and easier. And you still talk about how it's hard and you talk about how you want to get better and better at your craft. Would you address those two issues? Yeah, I think if someone asked me, what would you tell your younger writing self from this vantage point? And I would tell my younger writing self, don't think that it's going to get easier the more you write. It's not like swimming. You know, the more laps you swim in the pool, the better swimmer you can be. Like if you start swimming a mile and it just about kills you, you know, usually 10 years, 15 years into it, you can swim a mile 
and it's fine and you can swim another one you're you you're that much you know you you've grown that much as a as a swimmer as an athlete but the thing about books is the mile that i swim is different every time so when i finish a book and it's done well then i start the next one and i set the bar higher than the one before i want the next book to be better so i'm already starting reaching for a higher goal and i start with nothing it's a blank page and I think that's why it feels like it's getting harder is I expect more of myself and I've already written about some things. So now I need to explore new territory, if you will. And if I've already in the last 20 books that I've written have already explained what it feels like to lose someone you love. Well, the next time I do that, I, I have to find new ways of doing that. And that just makes me have to work harder. And that's OK. I feel like the harder you have to work at something, the more invested you become. And I feel like if I if I felt like it was easy, I would I would kind of lose my edge and I wouldn't push myself as hard. And I think the reader would end up being able to sense, oh, she's just kind of given up, not given up like she's not writing anymore, but she's not she's not pushing herself anymore. I don't want that to happen. So how do you get better at your craft? By For pushing me, yourself or tell I us? think what it is is um is is setting the bar higher, like wanting the best and like looking for a new way to construct a book. Like construction matters to me. Like, am I going to start at the beginning of this problem? Am I going to have backstory to help tell the story? Am I going to have an epilogue? How am I going to construct these chapters? Is it just going to be linear? Is that the best way? Is that the only way? So there's that. And then there's just this, um, this idea that there's got to be new ways of telling an old thing. Um, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Most of the stories that we're reading have been told before in some other ways. So how am I going to add to, you know, that genre and explain something in story form, a new way? There's that. And then I rely, I think, on reading other people's works to inspire me. So there are certain readers, certain readers, certain writers that I read all the time, like Kate Morton, who just has a brand new book out. If she writes a book, I'm going to buy it because I know her style is just, it's beautiful and enchanting and evocative. And so I read people like her that make me want to be a better writer. And I hope that it's because when I read them, that I, I somehow I'm able like, to channel somehow that the way they have of telling the story. There is such a gift when you're right, reading someone else's work and you covet the ability to do that and make that sentence sparkle. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is it, that's a very good parallel in terms of how you make yourself better. You're also a very disciplined writer. 2000 words a day on a writing day. Yes, on a writing day. Not all days are writing days, but it, like today is not today. I'm preparing for things that are going to be happening this week. But if, if it's a writing day, it's 2000 words. I'll be happy with 1500. I, I give myself a little bit of wiggle room there. But 2000 is the goal. And if I've worked all day and I've got 1500 good ones, it's OK. I'll just, you know, I'll try and do better the next day. But I found that if I give myself a word goal rather than hours in the chair goal, the book actually gets written. Um, I feel like there are days when uh, it takes me all day to get those 2000 words. Other days, the writing just flows and I'm only in their chair for four hours and I've got my words. So that's why the word count works better for me than hours in the chair, because the hours in the chair don't always result in the same thing. So Only the Beautiful is out, and another book is coming out, I believe, tomorrow. Tell us about it. It's totally new for you. 
It is. I had the chance to write a children's book and I, I kind of have always wanted to. I never thought I would. I'm not, it, I, I write for adults. So I never thought, I never thought I'd have the chance, but um, I did for this one. It's called Pumpkin Day at the Zoo and it's being put up by Tommy Nelson Books, which is a division of Thomas Nelson and HarperCollins. And uh, it's about this enrichment day that many zoos around the country have and they give their animals pumpkins for their habitats, for both um, play, recreation, for eating. They can do whatever they want with them. And um, some of the pictures you can see um, are, are on YouTube. You can like YouTube a pumpkin day at a, at a Cincinnati Zoo or the San Diego Zoo, and you can just see the animals really have a ball. And so the book is all about um, that, just the joy the animals have from these squashes that they get their habitats. And then, um, you know, the patrons get to see the animals enjoying it. So it's kind of a celebration of the harvest and uh, gratitude for fun things that you, that you get to enjoy. And uh, yeah, and I wrote it in verse, which was a lot of fun. So it's a picture book. So it's appropriate for your four to eight year old. So yeah, I'm really excited about it. I can't wait to see this. I have uh, young grandchildren, so this will be added to their library. Mm -hmm. So I just want to thank you so much for being here on The Storytellers. I can't wait to uh, finish Only the Beautiful and check out Pumpkin Day at the Zoo. Susan, thanks for being with me. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a copyrighted episode of The Storytellers by Grace Salmon and Authors on the Air, Global Radio Network. Thanks for being with me. That concludes this episode of The Storytellers. I'm so glad you could be part of the story today. I hope you share the stories, tell your own, and come back for another episode. Because when our stories are told, everything changes. I'm Grace Salmon.